Uh, I heard a story earlier this week uh, about a lad. He was um, he'd gone off to college to study. His name was Danny, and his mum went to visit him, as mums often do in the first sort of few weeks of go, uh, youngster going to college. Uh, the thing that she found when she got there took her a little back of her a little bit because Danny had just moved in with a girl called Alison. Um, and of course, when she heard about this, mum looked a bit quizzical and Danny jumped to his defence. You know, don't get stressed out about it, mum. It's purely platonic. It's just an arrangement so I can pay the bills. You know, we share the, share the bills. Uh, we live in separate rooms. It's just a cheaper way to live. But look, uh, yeah. But of course, his mum's eyebrow went up, as mums knowingly do, and thought, she looked at Alison and thought, well, she's a bit of a honey. Uh, there's no way. There's no way. But Danny assured her, no, 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 we're just doing it to save money. So they went out for a meal, they sat down, they had the lunch, they had a lovely time with the meal. And during that time, um, mum looked at Alison's wrist and saw this beautiful watch. She said, listen, hey, I, I love your watch. I've been wanting one just like it. Can, can, I, can I see your watch? Is that okay? Alison looked a bit unnerved, took off the watch and handed it over to Danny's mum. Well, and they went with the dinner. Now, a couple of days later, um, Alison came to Danny and said, I'm, I don't know quite what to say about this, but I, I can't find my watch. In fact, as I think back, the last time I saw it was when your mum was playing around and looking at it. Now, listen, I'm not thinking she would steal it, but perhaps an accident happened. I don't know. Perhaps, um, I don't know, maybe she dropped it in a purse or something. Perhaps she knows where it got left, something like that. So Danny, with fear and trepidation, started typing into his email, sent his mum an email and said, look, obviously, I'm not saying that you took the watch, but the fact remains that the watch is missing and you were the last one who had it. Hmm. A couple of days later, his mum sent an email back to him that said, Dear Danny, obviously I'm not saying that you are sleeping with Alison, but the fact remains that she... that had she been sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the watch on her pillow right where I left it. Okay. We all know what it is like to get caught in the midst of our failures and our best attempts to cover it up. And I wonder what Danny did at that moment. Did he just come clean? Did he even apologise, not just for the sin that he committed against God, but the sin of putting a, a wedge in his relationship with his mum uh, by lying to her and trying to deceitfully cover it up? We all know what it's like to get called out and found to be failing. Our conscience does a square dance. We have that sense that we've failed others, and we just really do believe that, well, if I just keep it quiet... It can't hurt us. And I said to you last week, the biggest lie, well not the biggest lie, but one of the biggest lies out of the pit of hell itself is what people don't know can't hurt them. Because the very nature of sin is that when it gets a foothold, it sort of lays dormant, just wrapping its little tendrils around things. And still you find years to come, people, they're bound by it. It, it just, it, there's a spiritual dynamic about covering up our failures and our sins that just rot us inwardly. Everyone has a strategy to deal with it when we mess up and fail. Everybody does, okay? And this is the key difference between somebody who's a believer in Jesus and somebody who does not know his forgiveness and his grace at work in their life. Everybody has a strategy. Some people just cover up. But actually, you can tell whether somebody is a genuine believer by how they respond after they have sinned. Now, this might surprise you because perhaps you're sitting here still under the illusion that, well, church is a place and it's a collection of good people. 
Okay, they are in the category of, well, they're not bad people, they just make a few mistakes. And if you're still under that illusion, just sit here for another couple of weeks and that will blow that one away. I mean, what churches have you been around? No, no, the definition of church is merely sinners who recognise they've got a problem. People go to AA, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, because they recognise they've got a problem. And the first thing they do is say, hi, my name is such and such, I am an alcoholic. For you to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing you've got to do in response to the offer of his mercy is say, hello, my name is Steve Casey and I'm a sinner from first to last. And I come here not because I can put a badge on or pretend to people, but because I know I can receive mercy with Jesus and that's what my soul needs. So please, let's not pretend. Let's not do sort of evangelical masks of happiness. You need to put a plastic smile on. I'm just doing great. No, every day, if you are a believer, you battle with sin. Everybody else battles with sin. They just cover up, pretend, hope it will go away and do not have an answer. But when you come to Jesus, you find the one who came, that the kids were saying here, not to save our sins, but to save us from the consequences of our sin, which is brokenness now, entrapment into it, and meeting a holy God as our enemy, which you do not want to do. So some of you may be surprised that we're talking about the fact that people who are believers and trusting God are failures. No, no. The second you become a believer is the second you've owned up and said, I need God's mercy. A church is a place where people know they need an answer to go to God for grace, to go to God for mercy. Which begs the question, what do you do, how do you deal with it when in the church there is sin? Do you just pretend it's not there because it's an uncomfortable and nasty thing? Do you face it? Do you get really strict and lay down the law? Do you just say, oh, well, we're all, we know Jesus and it's just love, 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 love. Just go live however you like. Do what you like. How do you deal with it? And that's what is going on in those two bits of the Bible that we had read to us earlier. We know what it is like to get caught in sin, but here, it's what you do afterwards which makes all the difference between life and death. There is sin in the church. There is sin in the Bible. There are no great men and women of God. There is just a great God. It's what you do with sin or being sinned against afterwards that makes the difference between your life and your death. So, let's track back over the Corinthian church. Remember, they'd come to trust in Jesus, but the, it was a real job to get the, the Corinth out of the Corinthian believers. They were in that city. It was a city that had no regard for God, no sense of his honour. They would give themselves to anything or to anybody for anything. And many of them trusted in Jesus. We found, didn't we, over the last couple of weeks, we found that the sexual immoral, uh, immorality was rampant. They were very determined to stand on their rights. They wanted their privilege and their status. They would give themselves to idol worship. In other words, they would sort of buy uh, food quite regularly that had been sacrificed to idol, almost like a good luck charm, like superstitious. Well, if I sort of do this little incantation over that bit of meat, it will bring good favour on me for the rest of the day. We had a little bit about spiritualism, which um, twists that and takes it a bit further but, um, over in Guinea, but um, Solange uh, and all the rest of the Woods families and Simon and Beatrice and Raphael are dealing with. This is when I don't write stuff down, I brain burst. Let me carry on. If you listen to this on the recording, ignore that bit. We learned as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that there was a dude who was sleeping with his stepmother and would march happily into church with her on her arm and boast about it. And the Corinthian church themselves were proud in the sense of, aren't we so liberated and free? 
And Paul turns to them, do you remember? And he says, what? What? Is Jesus of so little value that you care nothing for how you live and how he says you should live? He saved you and set you free, not to do, free you to do anything you jolly well please, but to free you so you can live for him and know him as Lord and Saviour. What you should be doing, Corinthian church, is if people are with swagger are saying they trust in Jesus and they're living however they want, is you need to lovingly, gently, but firmly go to them and call them back to live for Jesus. And if they won't, don't let them call themselves believers. And if they decide to keep on calling themselves believers when they're living against God, You need to do a public declaration. You need to say, look, please turn back, but until you do, you can't be associated with us for the honour of Jesus and for the good of our people. We want to live for him. We're not going to kid ourselves. And then we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, there's been power plays, and this is what's been going on. If you you remember, I mean, have you got it open there in in chapter 7, I've got it page 217, sorry, 817. You had to write them a stiff letter, didn't I? Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Do you pick up that he had some firm things to say to them? Could somebody read out for us verse 12? Somebody got verse 12? Okay, and what we can piece together is somebody, as well as that instance of a fellow sleeping with his stepmother, there was also a situation that happened where Paul got face down in public. There had been some teachers who'd come in from other sort of um, churches. They were, it was, they got a twisted gospel. They said, yeah, you need Jesus, but you need a little bit more. You need our pedigree. You need our sort of letters after our name. You need to have power. You need to, you need to engage with the world in the way that plays to the world's game. You need to sort of have a pseudo-Christianity. And Paul says, well, I'm weak. And it says, right, in that case, we're going to go to town on this guy, the Apostle Paul. And in a public meeting, they fronted him down. They ridiculed him, they opposed him to his face, they insulted him, they possibly suggested that he'd had his hand in the bag. Now, if that's your key leader who's teaching you the gospel, and you do that to the key leader, the Apostle, the one who wrote the Bible, what effectively you're doing is you're robbing the gospel of authority in the life of those believers. Now, this is a clear picture of what sin is. Sin is when you rob somebody of something. We can, ultimately, all our sin is against God. When we sin, we rob him of glory. We say, do you know what? You're good and all that, God, but really, if I want my life to work, I'm going to go that way. I'm going to pursue that thing. So sin is always robbing God. But what we do is we also, when we sin against somebody else, we rob them of something. Paul had been robbed of his respect. He had been robbed of justice. What happened was... That whole thing went off in a scene and then the church did absolutely nothing about it. They just stood there and... uh, They didn't stick up for their fellow. They didn't honour the leader who had been preaching the gospel to them. He'd been robbed of his opportunity to carry on preaching the gospel to them. He'd He'd been robbed of fellowship because they cut themselves off from the Apostle Paul. You see, whenever somebody sins against you, they rob something from you, don't they? Quite often it's dignity. Quite often it's respect. Quite often it's justice. Quite often it's um, opportunity. Did I say opportunity? Opportunity. You see that? And some of you sitting here going, I know how Paul felt. Because people have done that to, to me. In fact, there may even be people in this room who've done that to you. People do that, and it's absolutely horrendous. What do we do when that happens? Well, Paul sent them a stiff letter saying, Listen, if that's what you want to be, 
fine, but don't be, because Jesus Christ has something more for you. He wants you to live free of the influence of sin. There's no place for pride and power plays. There's no place for immorality. You're God's precious children. What's he basically saying? He's calling them to repent. So you can imagine the nervousness we find elsewhere in the book that he actually had it with tears. He would pray for them regularly and say, Lord, please bring them to their senses. He was going to go and visit them, but he thought it would be too incendiary, so he doesn't. In fact, he sends Titus. That wasn't him being a chicken and cowering out. That was just the fact that he thought, hold on, this is a volatile situation. Anything could go off here. So he sends Titus along. He sends him that stiff letter, and Titus comes back to him, and now we get the news. Right. What happened? What has changed? How would they respond knowing that they have been called out just like Danny's mum called him out over Alison? Now he is, they've been called out. What would they do? So that's what we're going to find out in the remainder of our time. I want us to see four things. I want to see that real Christians get disciplined. I want us to see that real Christians repent. I want us to see that real Christians forgive. I want us to see that real Christians get wonderfully restored by God's grace. And that's how it's different to when you have arguments and grief anywhere else. When there is sin, it's different here. Okay, so the first thing I want us to spot, and I've already hinted at it quite a lot, is that real Christians get disciplined. Where does this come from theologically? Just like Paul had a vision for those believers in Corinth, It's because he knows that God has a bigger vision for them. Did you know that God has a vision for your life? Now when I immediately say that, you start thinking, oh, maybe it means I'm going to be on the X Factor. Maybe that means I'm going to be a millionaire and have a nice flat screen telly and get a cruise around in my big fat car with my big fat rims on it. No. The Lord's vision for you is much more, much more holistic and much more life-bringing. His vision for you is that the rampant damage and rule of sin that wrecks and slants and twists every circumstance and situation you walk into, his vision is that would be disarmed of its power and you would better walk with God as your Lord and King. His vision for you is to deliver you from your sins, to liberate you, set you free. And sometimes we say, yeah Lord, bring it on, do it Lord. Help me be rid of my bitterness and my gossip and my anxiety and my anger and my false guilt and my, uh, uh, and my fears for the future. Lord, help me to get my tongue under control. Help me to get my temper under control. Yes, Lord. But other times we don't want to cooperate with God, do we? Just like some of those people in that church when they were doing the power plays with Paul or when they were carrying on with their immorality. Yeah, Lord, you can have that bit. I'm jolly well going to keep that. Oh, I just don't want to keep that. I want to keep that bit to myself. The Lord has a vision for all his people that we would live and walk in the freedom that Christ bled to achieve for us. That's what he wants for you. He doesn't want any half-full Christians. You know, I've spoken to you about this. Is that, you know, the, the sort of Cinderella Christians who sit here and, hear about, and they'll hear me talk about God's grace and God wants you to walk in joy. He wants you to have an eternal joy. And you're sitting there going, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. But everybody else gets to go to the ball, but not me, because I'm too bad. No. God has a vision for your life, and he says, I want you to enjoy life in all its fullness. That is his vision, and therefore, when you get in the way of that, he will discipline you. He will make it hard for you. He will get in your way. And some of you know that, don't you, because you've had him do it. 
And one of the means that he uses to do that is our circumstance and situation. Sometimes we'll be pursuing such things that are so foolish and damaging to us that he will get in the way. Other times what he will do is he will send his people, his church, and they will get in the way of you. And they will call you out. Sometimes sin deceives us and, and pulls the wool over our eyes and, that, and, and our Christian brothers and sisters around us are going to see and say, that's not, that's not in keeping with following Jesus. He's got a bigger and better vision for your life. What on earth are you doing that for? Come back, trust in Jesus. That thing that you keep hiding away, let the light of God's grace onto it so you can be free from it. And of course, so often what we do is we shrink back and we try and hide. In their arrogance, some people in that church had been clinging to their sinful desires with no regard for the Saviour and dishonouring his name and saying, your grace, Lord, that's all very well, but it's cheap compared to the riches of digging and diving into my sin. And Paul won't let that church do that. That's why he sent the letter. And it was painful. Have you ever been called out? Of course you have. It's painful. And if we pick up in those verses, let's start at verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. You have to really love somebody to be able to call them out, don't you? You can imagine, it's like, I really don't want to upset them, I really don't want to hurt their feelings, but I've got to write them, I've got to... Jesus is more valuable. They're flushing their life down the toilet. They need to be called and disciplined and, and called to repent. Though I did it, I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you. It hurts when people call us out, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorrow, I didn't want to hurt you, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. So we find that the church who'd acted badly towards Paul by putting up with these power plays, they came to their senses, because he'd written them a letter. And then one of the ways in which they sent, uh, as we're going to find out in a minute, one of the ways in which they came to their senses is they realised they didn't want to let the fellows who were trying the power plays get away with it. So they went towards them and they called them to repent. And when they wouldn't repent, they put them out of the gathering and said, listen, you cannot wear the name of Jesus and behave like that and just say it's okay. You can't go there. And so it was terribly sorrowful, but in the midst of that, they would decide, it was like a put up or shut up, are you going to stand on who Jesus is or are you going to go your own way? It was almost as if the Lord, uh, the Lord through Paul had got a spiritual two by four and had to smack them around the head to say, wake up! Jesus is more precious. So let me tell you again, God has a vision for your life to see the ensnaring and killing power of sin not get you. God disciplines you and God disciplines me because he has a vision for our future. Now I've told you this before, probably only about five or six weeks ago I last said it to you, but I need to say it to you again. A disciplining for somebody's future is what we should want for other people too. So we want it in our families. If you're a parent, listen up. Don't you dare discipline your kid because they irritate you. Have you noticed how sometimes we'll clip them around the ear just because they've got in our way or not dance to our tune or do what we want? That's not what the Lord does. Now what we do is every time we give a sanction to our youngster, sit on the step, you're going to get a whack backside, go and sit in your room, no you can't go and do that, it's not because we're being vindictive and getting at them, it's because we don't want them to learn that sin works for them. Therefore, even though it's harder for us, what we do as parents is we act in, and discipline them because we have a vision for their future. That's what it means to be a loving parent. 
We want a church environment like that, that with great cautiousness and great sensitivity and great humility, we have a vision for one another's spiritual well-being, which means, oh dear, it means that if one of us is walking in a bad attitude and don't want to let it go, we pray for that person, we don't take it personally, and we, we love them enough to say, look, can I come alongside you and help you walk for Jesus? Can I encourage you to repent and turn away from that? That's what love looks like. Real Christians get disciplined because God loves us. Do you believe that? He loves us. Second of all, real Christians repent. Well, let's read through to the end of this section. Even though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So what do you do when someone calls you out? That's what's happening. Paul has called them out now. He'd loved them enough to be a means of God's discipline in their life. If you get called out, you will respond in one of five ways, and you can tick them off, because you'll recognise each and every one of them. First way, somebody calls you out on something, number one, well, you'll hide hide it. We'll hide our sin away. We'll say, do you know what, I'm in a bit of trouble, yeah, I agree with you, but uh, I've dealt with it now, it's no big shakes, just let it lie, not a problem, hide it away. And the problem is, is even within churches, let alone families outside the church, we've got people with secrets. And it festers. That's the problem. If you hide it, the enemy of our soul is happy for you to hide it if it means that it will grow and get twisted and create bitterness and just mess you up. We can hide it behind our church attendance. We can hide it behind our Christian smiles, our plastic Christian smiles. But it's there, so when somebody calls you out, you just play it down and hide it. Another one. Next one. Somebody calls you out, sometimes what we do is we minimise it. We minimise it. And can I tell you, this is really odious, and I've had the painful experience of sitting with some people who they've made choices to act against what God would do. They'd even say, I know God asked me to do this, but I want to do it anyway, and I know God will forgive me. That's really messed up, isn't it? I know God says this and do this, but he'll forgive me, it's his job. And in that moment, when somebody says that, you know that Jesus dying on the cross means nothing to them. The sin for which Jesus bled, was stretched out, had nails, so it was cut off from his father, experienced an eternity of hell in that moment, on the cross, to pay for our sin. And you say, oh well, I know sin, you know, it's only a little thing, Jesus will forgive me anyway. It immediately tells you that that person has got no regard or love for Jesus at all. And we love Jesus and he says hate sin. We hate it and we want to get it as far away. But sometimes when people get called out, they just minimise it. Well, but people hide it, they minimise it. What about the next one? People rationalise it. 
they rationalize it, they say, do you know what, it makes sense that I'm doing this, I mean, after all, nobody's perfect, I'm hurting at the moment, um, and it's so small, you know, I can't help it, you know, I deserve to get some sort of little escape because of what I'm going through. I sit there and I find all kinds of good reasons, perhaps somebody's come at me and been really mean, and, uh, or it feels like they've been really mean, so, you know, if I react back, that's understandable, you know. Um, you know, if I'm, well, I, I've sort of, I've had a really bad week and the Lord wants me to relax. He really does, so I'm sure he doesn't mind. He knows what I'm going through. So some people, what they do is they rationalise it. Oh, there's this one, this one's, you know this one, you've seen it, you do it. What you do is you blame shift. Lord, it's not my fault. You know, it's not my, you've no idea what I've been going through and what I've had to face. I have it worse than other people and if they hadn't been there doing that, I would not have done it. I mean, Lord, I know you tell us not to sin, but if you had my wife, I tell you what, if you had my boss, if you had my church, if you had my kids, if you had my kids, you'd buy a handle too, Lord. Oh, do you know the, the modern one? I love this. This one's come out more and more. What we do is now we blame shift to our genes. I am genetically predisposed um, um, towards this particular sin. And anybody who ever says that shows they've got no understanding of the fact that we as human beings are both body and soul. Our genetics and the material body of us cannot make us sin. Because sin is something that starts and comes from your heart and your soul. We can be presented with all kinds of troubles because of our physiology, but our physiology cannot make us sin. So if anybody ever suggests to you they can, tell them, no! It's another example of blame shifting. I suppose the original blame shifter was Adam and Eve. You remember that? There was Adam in the garden. He'd just eaten the fruit. The Lord calls him out for what he's done. (laughs) This is hilarious. Only a fella could do this. The woman that you gave me. Here's Adam. And he blames the only other two people in the room. The woman and God. Do you think that that same kind of victim mentality doesn't infect us? Of course it does when we get called out. So the first option is what we do is we hide our sin. The second one is we minimise it, we rationalise it, we blame shift. Or the one that I really want you to think about going for because it's sort of at the centre of the Bible's message and it's the door that opens you to being free from it and refreshed and renewed and having joy in your life. It is this one, repentance. Repentance. What is repentance? Well, it starts with godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is like, oh yeah, I've messed up again and it's really wrecked my life, and people don't like me, or, or, or it shows that I'm actually quite weak. It's all about me. It's all about me and my feelings and what I've done. Godly sorrow is, my God died for me, saved me, has called me to himself for all eternity, and I've done this to him? Oh, no! If you've ever had that sense, that's godly sorrow. So it starts there. It starts out without any blame shifting. I own it. And genuine repentance isn't, I'll pay it back. But what I'll do is I'll pay on credit. Lord, please, let me off this one and I'll make it up to you. Oh dear, boy, did you overestimate your potential. Make it up to God? No, we need him to pay the price. We need him to carry the weight. And so repentance goes and says, Lord, against you only have I sinned. You, I've made you small. I've turned against you. And I cannot pay it back. I am at your mercy. I'm not going to cover up anymore. Lord, in repentance, I'm going to face the worldly consequences, whatever that may be. 
I'm going to face the consequences, I'm going to live up to it. So sometimes it means that, you know, we can repent of our sin, but we still may have to go to jail. We may repent, repent of our sin, but it makes our marriage difficult for a while. We may repent of our sin, but within the church people struggle to trust us for a bit. And what you do is you say, Lord, I realise those are natural consequences, but I can still repent and renounce it, and I can know that I'm restored fully to you. And this is what makes repentance so amazing. You actually turn to the one against whom you've offended. You turn to him, and it's a statement about what he's like, because if he was a cruel, wicked, nasty judge, you wouldn't turn to him, because he'd fry you on the spot. But have you ever been at that point, of course you have if you're a believer, where you've just thought, I surrender it all, I lay it down, my only hope is the one I've screwed over. And I'm going to go to him and say, Lord, please have mercy upon me, a sinner. I have no grounds to stand before you. My only hope is that you are the God you say you are, abounding in love, mercy and patience. That's what repentance is. You renounce what you've done, you recognise it was against God, and you rush to him for mercy and say, Lord, change me. And what a transforming power it had in the life of those Corinthians there. Can you see in verse 11? They came, verse, sorry, verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Salvation is being made new, rescued out of it. They've got no regrets anymore. They didn't sit at home going, oh dear, I'm such a sin. No, the thing, the new headline in their life was what Jesus had done for them. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness. They'd have a spiritual makeover. The way you let spiritual makeover into your life, repent. Do you get that? Repent. In fact, it was the first thing that Jesus said when he stepped on the scene. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news and its power will come into your life. So real Christians repent. Some of us need to learn to repent. Not just pass over, not just hide. Some of you have got things you need to repent for. Some of, uh, most of it will be towards God, but some of it will be towards other people. Some of your sins have been against other people, and you need to say, I want to renounce them. I realise that there's been a, a rift here, and the only way that we can have that rift ended is if I'm honest, and I own what I need to own, and I ask you, well, to receive me in mercy on the grounds of that. Do you see? Thirdly, real Christians forgive. We're not going to get a chance to do number four. We'll, just, we'll stop with number three here. Real Christians forgive. Now just flick back to chapter two, William, verse five. And boy, oh boy, were they a picture of a typical church. They were a typical of a picture of a typical church that they're a picture of a typical church who, on one hand, they're over here the one moment, then they swing and pendulum the far away. To start off with, they wouldn't deal with sin, and now what's happened is They've started dealing with it and they've got overzealous. So here they are. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Do you see what's going on? The guy who did the power play against Paul has now repented, but now they're really nervous about letting him back. Oh, said some of them. 
What if he's not sincere? Oh, what if he... Well, we need to leave him out a little bit longer just to teach him a lesson. After all, it's not grace that teaches a lesson. It's rules that teach lessons. And that's how they were thinking. And Paul's like, whoa! Don't go there. You acted in discipline to this guy in order that he might repent. Now he's repented. Don't treat him as a second-class citizen. Bring him back amongst you with full rights and privileges of one who is in the right with God. If God has said you're alright with me, then you can say you're alright with me as well. And that's exactly what happens here. Forgiveness starts to break in. And the fact that they find it hard to offer forgiveness shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because that's totally up to date at the moment. Totally up to date. I've noticed that in our society we're not very quick to offer forgiveness. Have you noticed that around speak, if you try to offer forgiveness, it's seen as a weakness? Have you noticed that? So quite often what we won't do is we won't offer forgiveness because we'll be looked upon as powerless and people will try and get one over on us. In TV, we, we exalt in vengeance and retaliation. I mean, we try to view ourselves as a really non-judgmental culture. Every single TV program is about somebody, some baddie being chased down, some scoundrel getting prosecuted. We're really judgmental. We don't like to see bad people get away with it. I like to see them brought to justice. And that affects and shapes the way we do forgiveness. Even in TV and even in media and song, we don't like letting people, we don't like acting in forgiveness. I was listening with uh, my girls to one of the recent Jesse J songs. Do you remember that song? Who's Laughing Now? Do you remember it? Here's a pop star. She's got a gazillion pounds in the bank. She's got, um, she's high profile. She's everywhere. And she's written a song, basically, to sing back at the kids who used to bully her. And what a horrible thing to be bullied by by kids. To be made they feel uncomfortable in the classroom. But what she does is, her soul song is, Who's Laughing Now? So what she's doing is she's looking back and going, Ha ha, look at me, I'm doing really well now. And I suspect that as she sat down to pen that, I think she was hoping that she'd get a measure of closure over that whole thing. But it's one of those situations, isn't it, where you say, I think she does protest too much. The fact is, those people who were cruel to her and mean to her back then, have they still got power over her? The fact she has to write a song about it tells you that actually, acting in retaliation, the people who've been cruel to her and mean to her, they've still got power over her. Do you get that? If you don't act in forgiveness, people still have power over you. They shape the way you feel. It's got a huge cost in society at the moment. We've got a blame culture, a judgment culture. Personally, what it does is if you don't forgive, it imprisons you in your past. You cannot get get on with life if you won't act in forgiveness. What happens is every conversation that you um, enter into is a possibility for you to vent about that person who's wronged you and they haven't faced up to it. You get up in the morning, you go out and you do your business and everything is being shaped by the wrong that has been done to you, not by the Lord who reigns over you. Effectively, the sin done to us, we let it be our master. It shapes the way we interact. It shapes the way we feel about ourselves and other people. That's if you don't let forgiveness in. We become a victim of bitterness. Our imaginations run wild and we're always looking for a way to to get back at them. But when we forgive, we become free. I suppose really, uh, do you know, I was thinking about this this week, I suppose forgiveness, as I'm saying it now, forgiveness sounds like such a wonderful idea, doesn't it? Until it comes to the point where you're the one who's got to offer forgiveness. Have you noticed how hard it is? 
Have you noticed how hard it is? Can I tell you, you are never more godlike than when you forgive. Because the God of the Bible is the God who forgives. He doesn't cover over, he doesn't blame shift. He acts to carry a debt. So very quickly as I finish, I just want you to understand what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a promise. When you offer forgiveness, you make somebody a promise. When God offered you forgiveness, he made you a promise. He says, I will not count your sins against you. I will act to you in generosity and act for your eternal joy. I will want and pursue good for you as if you have always acted rightly towards me. I will be enthusiastic for your well-being. I will treat you as if you've always treated me properly. I will allow no charge or accusation to stand against you. I will not let condemnation sit on you. That is God's promise. He opens up the relationship again with full generosity. That is the promise of forgiveness. That is what God does for us. Christ went to the cross to carry all our wickedness and wrong to deal with it, to pay for it, so there is now nothing outstanding, no hindrance between us and God, should we receive that forgiveness by repenting towards him. And when we do that, we know that God is as for us as if we'd never sinned. Do you believe that? Do you believe that today, because of what Jesus has done, God is as for you as if you had never, ever sinned? Do you believe that? If you receive Jesus and trust that promise, that is the defining reality of your life. Slate, white, clean. And when you are asked to forgive somebody else, or when the Lord lays it on your heart to forgive somebody else, he's asking you to do the same towards somebody else. To say every day, I will not count that sin against them. I will act for their good and for their joy. I will not treat them as the enemy that they have treated me as. I will carry the weight of the burden. I will not act condemningly or think condemning thoughts. If they fail, I will not rejoice in it. I will love them and act towards them. That's what it means for forgiveness. And there's some of you sitting there thinking, that sounds really, really nice. But some of you are really battling with that because some of you have really been hurt by people. Some people have done wicked and horrible things to you. People have robbed you of your dignity of your opportunity, of respect, of physical stuff, of relationships. And then you think for a second, I did all that to God. I robbed him of his value and his dignity when I sinned against him. I robbed him of his own dear son who had to go to the cross to pay for my sin. I robbed him of the glory that he is due every day and I tried to claim it for myself. I robbed him of truth. I accused him of all kinds of wrong. I robbed him of justice. And yet knowing all that, he would take that on himself. He would carry it so I could go free. How dare I hold that back from somebody else? And so the Apostle Paul says to them, have him back. Now instead you ought to forgive him and comfort him. See the the restoration of relationships there. I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. You see, the devil will get you both ways. Don't deal with sin, the devil wins. 
Deal with sin in such a way that there's a person who has sinned who's left feeling like a second class citizen wallowing in sorrow. The devil wins. The only way to do it is to say, yes, through Jesus Christ, everything's paid. It is dealt with. Relationships restored. No second class citizens in God's kingdom. And for some of you, I insist, as your act of faith today, you walk out of this building with your head held high. Because if you've trusted in Jesus, you are not your sin. Don't you dare wallow. Don't you dare. Oh, you may have done things, but that is not who you are. It's what Jesus has done that declares who you are. Do you understand that? I wish I had time to go on to the way, the wonderful way in which they, they restored and everything got put and everything was going wonderfully, but I can't because we're running out of time. So I just want to finish with what, this one story of why forgiveness is so hard and that with Christ's help, you can see the words there in verse, verse 10, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. That's actually in, in the face, before the face of Christ, in the light of what Christ has done for me, I forgive you. In his name, knowing that he has done so much more, I forgive you. In the light of that, I tell this story about um, Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom was um, a nominal believer from a strong Christian family who, in the Second World War, they were arrested by the Nazis and banged up in Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her elder sister, Betsy, was a source of strength for countless people in that camp. Um, but the ravages of the camp, the cruelty of the German SS officers, um, meant that it wasn't long before she died, and she died a very horrible death. And this was imprinted on Corrie ten Boom's mind. She, she couldn't forget about the way in which her, her captors had treated the other prisoners and robbed her sister of not just dignity, value, but also life itself. But after the war, she grew in her faith and she started taking a stand on the promises of Jesus and she started asking, Lord, would you help me to forgive? And she went around to church, she's telling her testimony, telling her story, and she would often stand at the front and preach the message of how God forgives even the worst, the most horrible people. And then she tells this story. In a church meeting, I saw him. The SS guard who had stood at the shower room door at the processing centre in Ravensbrook concentration camp. With the other guards, he had often run his hand over naked bodies as they went by and responded callously to requests for help. He was the first of our actual jailers I had seen after the war. And suddenly, I was there all again. The heaps of clothing, Betsy's pained, blank face. And when he came up to me as the church was emptying, he said the following. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think as you say, He, God, has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. But my hand stayed at my side. Angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me. I I tried to smile. I, I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. And silently there in that moment, I prayed. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. 
from my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass. And in my heart, a love for this stranger grew that almost overwhelmed me. Do you believe in a gospel that is big enough to discipline an SS guard? Do you believe in a God who is big enough to bring that guy to repentance before the cross? A gospel that is big enough to give him forgiveness that he didn't deserve and had no place earning because Jesus paid the sin, paid the penalty for a mass murderer. That's what Jesus got when he died on the cross. There is now nothing more standing against that guard who has received Jesus by faith. And do you believe in a gospel that is big enough to restore Corrie ten Boom to a point where she has love for one who robbed her of so much? You don't get that out there. You get that when you stand at the foot of the Lord Jesus' cross and look up at him, seeing him die for the sins of the world and him cry out to the world, It is finished. I'm making all things new. Let's pray together. Lord, we've admitted that we're sinners. We've admitted that we need to be called out. That we want to deal with our sin and the sins of others differently. We will not, Lord, we will not be a church that messes with sin. We will not be a church, Lord, that allows sin to go. We will be people who love one another enough to step in and support and encourage and challenge. But we will do it knowing that we all stand as recipients of grace, knowing that we are no better than anybody else. We will stand wanting the freeing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be at work amongst us. Lord, we will repent and we will forgive, but we cannot do it on our own. We need your grace in the face, in the imminence, in the presence of Christ. We will live and we will be marked out as different because we are people who are being restored by the God of grace. Lord, please help us to do what you would have us do as a result of what we've heard here today. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.